Nicknames are interesting things. Some sound pretty cool, and some are just downright cheesy. But sometimes nicknames catch on. Sometimes people create them and choose them for themselves. You might recognize some of these. The King, LeBron James, or if you're from an older generation, Elvis Presley. Uh, How about the Duke, John Wayne? And then some that people create for themselves. The greatest, Muhammad Ali, he was a humble guy. The king of pop, Michael Jackson. You may have had a nickname. And nicknames say something about us whether we like what they say or not. They say something, they communicate something about who we are. Do you know what name Jesus used for himself more than any other? Do you know what name is used in the gospels for Jesus more than any other except his name, Jesus? Well, we've already given away the punchline in one sense. But we're going to begin with the passage that has been the springboard for this Christmas series, Peter's confession in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. I'll read a few verses here, just make a couple of comments, and then we'll jump to the passage where we will be for, the, for most of our time this morning. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, "Uh, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter's confession is that Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed one. In essence, Peter is confessing that Jesus is divine. And yet, as Jesus answers Peter immediately after this, he calls himself the son of man. Is he contradicting Peter? Is he saying that, no, Peter, I'm only human. I'm only a son of man. What does this title, son of man, mean? And why did Jesus choose it? To refer to himself? Well, to answer that question, we have to turn back to the Old Testament passage from which Jesus took the title Son of Man. We're going to Daniel chapter 7, and you can turn there. We'll read it here in just a moment. Daniel 7 is a dream. The first half of the chapter is Daniel communicating what his dream was, what he saw in his vision. And then the second half of the chapter 
is the explanation of the dream and some expansion on it. We'll read the first half, the dream itself, and then throughout the rest of the morning, we'll dip into the second half as well. Prepare yourself. We're stepping into a nightmare. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not 
be destroyed. This is God's word for us today. Now you may be thinking, that's one of the weirdest things I have ever heard. And you'd probably be right. At least no one should fall asleep today. Uh, At least you've got some really good things to sketch on a piece of scrap paper. Our, Our son Asher was actually reading this right as the service was starting. And he said, this is awesome. I can't wait to hear this sermon. But let me begin with a question. What is the story through which you view the world? We as humans tend to think in stories. We tend to think in narratives that help us to make sense of our lives, our world, and what's going on. Perhaps yours is the victim narrative, that you're the captive of really horrible circumstances, and your whole life is defined by what has been done to you, and you can't escape from it. Perhaps yours is the power narrative, that there are people or groups who have power, and there are people or groups who don't have power. And the best we can do in this world is to take power from one group and give it to the other. Perhaps yours is the romantic narrative, that someone is going to come and make your life better. Someone's going to rescue you from your dull and boring existence and is going to make your life bright and happy and colorful. What's the story through which you view the world? Did you know that Scripture gives us a story through which we view the world? A story which makes sense of history of our lives, and what's going on in the world around us. And here in Daniel 7, we get a snapshot of what that story is. And we begin with the rampage of beastly lords. The rampage of beastly lords. The first eight verses are a description of these four creatures that come up out of the ocean. What in the world is going on? Who are these or what are these? Well, if we were to dip into the second half of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel basically asks that question. Look at verse 17. He turns to somebody who's near him. Apparently in his dream, there's, you know, there's people standing around, angels or some other types of persons. And he turns to somebody near him and he says, Who, what are these things? Verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Okay, well, that's helpful. They're symbolic. They represent four rulers or four empires. Now, if you know the book of Daniel, that should tip you off or it should sound familiar. If you were with us back in the summer, we went through the first four chapters of Daniel. And in chapter two, The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream. And it's a dream of an image, a statue, made up of four different metals. The head of gold, the shoulders and chest of silver, 
the belly and thighs of bronze and the feet of iron and part clay. And in chapter two, basically we find out that those four metals represent four empires, four rulers, Babylon, the kingdom that came after them, Medo-Persia, the kingdom that came after it, Greece, and the last kingdom, Rome. Well, that seems to run parallel with what's happening here. Four metals in the statue, Daniel chapter two, four beasts in Daniel chapter seven, which are also symbolic for empires. So you have the lion, which is Babylon, the bear, which is Medo-Persia, the leopard, which is Greece, four heads, Greece split into four when Alexander the Great died, and then the great terrifying beast, which is Rome, which wrecked the world. But Daniel says that this fourth beast is different from the others. So it doesn't seem to just indicate the empire of Rome you know, centuries ago. It seems to be this climax of all the human governments that are set against the God of heaven. Age after age, century after century, generation after generation, human governments have risen and shaken their fist in the face of God and then they've crumbled. And then another one rises and the same thing happens and another one rises. That's why you have four animals coming up out of the sea. One comes and passes off. Another comes and passes off. And then you get to this fourth beast, which is different and seems to be the climax of all anti-God governments. And what do we see about anti-God governments? What's the description of this fourth beast? Look again at verse seven and look at the terms that are used about it. It's terrifying It's dreadful, it's exceedingly strong, it has great iron teeth, it devours, breaks in pieces, stamps with its feet. And unlike most creatures in nature, which have one or two horns, this one's got 10, five times as much power as your normal creature or kingdom. What does that sound like? Sounds like Godzilla to me. If you've seen the old black and white movies or if you've seen maybe some of the newer ones, in either case, what impression do you take away? That there is something so massive and so destructive that it will snuff you out without a second thought if you get in its way. And is that not what tyrannical human governments have been like? in human history. Consider Joseph Stalin's forced starvation of the Ukrainian people during the 1930s when he essentially wiped out a population the size of Oklahoma. Consider the massacres of 1915 to 1922 when the Turkish government obliterated nearly half of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire by shooting bayoneting and forced marches into the desert. They slaughtered a population that would fill West Virginia. Consider the 14 million souls transported across the Sahara Desert and into the Middle Eastern countries and kingdoms 
to be slaves. Over the course of several centuries, a population the size of Illinois was abducted and transported, and many of them never reached their destination alive. This is what human rulers and empires do. They abuse, they devour, they crush. But human government's animosity is even more pointed. It's more directed. Who is it focused on? Well, look down at verse eight of Daniel seven. Here's the fourth beast. It's got 10 horns. And then all of a sudden this weird thing happens where three of the horns pop out as another one comes up. And in that little new horn, you've got eyes and a mouth. And what's happening? Verse eight, I considered the horns, three come out, a new one comes up. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Apparently, Daniel finds this out in the second half of the chapter. This horn stands for a ruler that is arrogant and pompous and sets himself up against the God of heaven. Look at verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Now jump to verse 25. This horn shall speak words against the most high. Here's what human rulers do. They lift themselves up against the God of heaven. And they basically say, if there is a God, we're not accountable to him and we don't care about him. They speak bombastic, arrogant boasts. And how does this play out? They can't reach God. They shout and yell at him. So what do they do? They focus their hostility onto God's people. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, we find the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Verse 25, he's speaking words against the most high and he shall wear out the saints of the most high. Throughout history, human rulers and governments set against God have focused their hatred against God's people, persecuting them. Consider the early Christians under the emperor Nero who were torn apart by wild animals in the Colosseum or who were lit on fire as human torches. Consider believers in present-day Eritrea who are imprisoned in shipping containers and die from the scorching heat. Consider Nigerian Christians who are deprived of food aid by their community leaders simply because they are known as followers of Jesus. You might be saying, Abe, this isn't a very nice Christmas sermon. And you're right. The Bible in some sense isn't nice. It exposes our humanity for what it really is. Brutal and savage and inhuman apart from God. When humans set themselves against their creator, then governments made up of humans turn deadly 
and destructive. And in the midst of that dark and terrifying picture, as the horn, the one horn with the mouth, the ruler, is boasting his great things over here, what does Daniel see? We turn to the second section, the verdict of the ageless judge. Look down at verse nine of Daniel seven. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. What does that picture bring to mind? A throne and someone sitting on it. Obviously it's a ruler, it's a king. And who is it? It's the ancient of days. It's a really interesting phrase. It might conjure up images in your mind of an old, decrepit, weak, great-great-grandfather. But the ancient of days speaks of eternal being. I am. I exist. I do not change. These kingdoms are coming up out of the sea. The next one comes up out of the sea. And the next one comes up out of the sea. And the ancient of days exists. And he sits on his throne, calm and in control. And did you notice in verse two, this really interesting phrase? It says at the end of verse two, Daniel sees the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The winds of heaven, God himself is stirring up these earthly kingdoms to expose them. It's all in his plan and he's in control. But he's not just reigning as he sits on his throne. The ancient of days is judging. And as we keep reading toward the end of verse 10, you get to some court terminology. End of verse 10, it says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The emperor of the universe has taken his seat and he's gonna make a decision. Well, what kind of a judge is he? Look at his description, middle of verse nine. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. He's without stain or impurity. And so we know whatever decision he makes, it's gonna be a perfect one. And look at the image of fire. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. What does fire do? It purifies. No impurity can stand before it. And so whatever decision this judge makes is going to root out all impurity. He is pure, but he's also a supreme judge. Daniel sees a thousand thousands who are serving him and 10,000 times 10,000 who are standing before him. He is sitting above and apart from the hosts who are waiting to do his bidding. They're standing there waiting for him to tell them what to do and they will go do it. They're his servants. He is supreme, but he's also decisive. The court is convened 
And what does he do? And I love the irony of this. Okay, so right before Daniel saw the throne set, what was happening? The little horn, the ruler, is over here boasting great things. At the end of verse 8, we see the Ancient of Days. And then again in verse 11, the horn's still going. It's almost like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. That's what human boasts are like to the Ancient of Days. And what happens? As he is boasting, as I looked, verse 11, the beast was killed. Just like that. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Earth's kings and rulers are doomed by the ancient of days. They stand no chance before him. He is the ruler of heaven and earth and he has given his verdict. And it is that all the empires who are opposed to him will be obliterated. But the almighty doesn't just remove all the earthly kingdoms and leave a vacuum of leadership. He does something much more glorious. And to get an insight into this, I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two. Hopefully now that we've had some context from Daniel chapter seven, this will fit like a glove. Psalm chapter two and verse one. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Wah, 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 wah. The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, and here's their little boast, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We're not accountable to the God of heaven. And there he's going, spouting off. There's the horn. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens, the ancient of days, What's his response? He laughs. And it is not a jovial, humor-filled laugh because what does it say? The Lord holds them in derision. He mocks them. You puny, pitiful little people. Then the ancient of days, then the Lord will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So here were these kings, these beasts who were terrifying everybody else. They seemed so intimidating when Daniel saw them in his dream. And now the ancient of days is terrifying them. And what does he say in verse six? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The ancient of days doesn't just remove earthly kingdoms. He sets up his own chosen king. And so we turn back to Daniel chapter seven to see in the last section, the triumph of the glorious king. Verse 13, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Who is this figure who appears on the scene? Well, he's described in a couple of different ways. First, he's described as like a son of man. This isn't a title. It's just a description. Here's a a human figure who showed up. We have the ancient of days with all his servants around him and these earthly kingdoms. And then all of a sudden, this human-like figure appears on the scene. And he stands in stark contrast to the beasts, the animal-like inhuman rulers of the world. He is noble and powerful and beautiful while they are savage and bestial and cruel. He is like a man, but he is so much more than a man. How does he show up? Behold, with the clouds of heaven, You have this stark contrast between the earth and the sea and the beasts that come out of it and the heavens where the ancient of days sits. Well, this one like a son of man comes on the clouds of heaven. His origin is from heaven, not from earth. And he comes on the clouds. What difference does that make? Well, whenever you see somebody coming on clouds in the Old Testament, you know it is the God of heaven. A couple of examples. Psalm 104 says that God makes the clouds his chariot and he rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19 says that God rides on a swift cloud. So this one who is coming on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days is God-like. He's traveling like God. So he is human and he is divine. He is also exalted and he is royal. Look what he is given. Verse 14. So he has been presented before the ancient of days and to this one, like a son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And if we go to the end of verse 14, we see that this kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This one is entrusted with a realm, a dominion, and he is given glory, dignity, honor, and he is given a kingdom that will never end. Well, that sounds like God himself. What ruler has ever ruled forever? He also possesses these things for what reason? Look at what it says after that. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So you had the ancient of days with thousands around him waiting to serve him. And now you have the son of man who has been entrusted with a kingdom so that everyone on earth may serve him. That's a God-like figure. And to add to the point, here's a little Easter egg, a little detail that's just beautiful to me. Did you notice 
at the beginning, uh, sorry, at verse nine, as Daniel looks, he sees that thrones were placed. Thrones, multiple, more than one. But the only one who sits at that point is the Ancient of Days. So you have at least two thrones and you have the Ancient of Days who's seated in one. What about the other one? And to answer that, I want to read you some words from another psalm, Psalm 110. You can just listen. It is it is likely that Daniel had access to the Psalms and may even had memorized some of the Psalms. So it seems that he is drawing a direct line from Psalm 110 to this vision to explain who this son of man is. Psalm 110, this is written by David, king of Israel, who is considered to be Israel's greatest king. Every king after him was measured by David. And God had given David a promise that one day a king is going to come from his family who would sit on a throne and who would rule forever. So what does David say in Psalm 110? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that can sound confusing. My Lord, the Lord, what, somebody talking to himself? Well, in your English version, if, you're, if you happen to look at this, the Lord is all capitals. It's the translation for Yahweh, the covenant name of the God of heaven. We could insert ancient of days. Yahweh says to my Lord, David's Lord, and this is the title, Adonai, my king my Lord, my master. Yahweh says to my master, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made a footstool for your feet. And so in Psalm 110, we see a hint of what Daniel also sees. And you put these puzzle pieces together and you see that David's Lord is the son of man who comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented to him. And the Ancient of Days says, sit in the vacant throne at my right hand and rule as my king over the universe. This is his anointed. This is Yahweh's chosen one that he has set up. And centuries after Daniel's vision, Jesus referred to this very passage, Daniel chapter seven. Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priest essentially dares Jesus to claim that he is divine, that he is God. The high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. He's essentially putting Jesus under oath. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, the son of God. And what does Jesus reply? You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see 
the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming, how? On the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus doing? He's referring in his moment of trial, as he's being accused, he refers back to Daniel 7 and he says, essentially, I am the son of man, the king that God has chosen to set up on his throne forever and ever. And he basically tells his accusers who are judging him that he is coming back one day to judge them. And we know that the high priest and his his cohort got it because what does the high priest do? What is his reaction? He tears his robes and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. The high priest knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Well, you might ask at this point, what does this have to do with me? Okay, Jesus is the son of man. Okay, he's the king. Why does that matter to me? The son of man is divine and human. He is royal and exalted, and he is also representative. What do I mean by that? Well, leaders often stand in the place of their followers. We know this from normal examples of life. Let me give you a couple. You think about history, great generals and battles. We talk about people such as General MacArthur winning the war in the Pacific. We know General MacArthur didn't single-handedly win the war, but he is the representative for all of the forces united under him. Elon Musk launches spaceships and builds Tesla cars. We know CEOs don't actually assemble the things and make them run, but every, a person's followers are united under them and are drawn up into their successes and their failures. So in Daniel 7, what does he say about this king, this son of man? Look down at verse 18 of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's talking to this bystander and the bystander says, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Well, wait a second. I thought the son of man just received the kingdom. Yep. But what is happening? The king is sweeping up all of his subjects into his reign so that as he possesses the kingdom, they possess the kingdom. As he reigns, so they also reign. And what we find hinted in Daniel 7 is expanded in the New Testament that whoever is connected to this son of man is united to him and participates with him in his rule. So the son of man wins the kingdom for his people. And the son of man also defeats the enemies of his people. Look down at verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 
There's coming a day when the ancient of days who sits on his throne will say, enough. And he will crush all of those enemies who have been asserting themselves against him and persecuting his people. And how is he going to crush his enemies? He's going to do it through his anointed king, the son of man, who is the one who comes a second time to finally and fully crush all resistance and draw his people into his kingdom forever. We need a rescuer like this because these earthly kingdoms who rise out of the sea of chaos are too powerful for any of us. We cannot defeat them. We cannot resist them. We need Christ, the mighty champion who fights for us and who draws us up into his rule and reign. This is the beautiful story that Jesus has swept us up into if you are his followers. So believer, those of you who are following Jesus, your story today is not a victim narrative. You have been made a victor if you are united to the king. Your story today is not a power struggle that you have to win because you have been united to the king who will win. And your narrative today is not some romantic story where you're looking for a hero to rescue you. No, you have received a hero and a champion who has already done the work to rescue you. You do not need anything else. But this glorious truth doesn't eliminate the fact that followers of Jesus still face hostility and difficulty today. The people of God have always needed a vision of this future to help us through today. So two words, two words for you, believers. First, remember who you are. Remember who you are. To you who are depressed and discouraged, consider that the Son of Man has invited you to sit with him on his throne and to reign with him. To you who are defeated by a sinful habit, remember who you are. Consider that the King has made you his saints, his holy ones, and has called you into a life of nobility and freedom and purity. To you who are fearful and anxious, remember who you are. Consider that you are more than conquerors through him who saved you. Remember who you are. The second, share who he is. Share who he is. What were the final words that our king said to us before he left this earth? He said to his followers gathered around him, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's the king. And what did he do immediately after this? He ascended into a 
cloud, and he was seated at the right hand of God. So he is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And what does he tell us to do? He says, go therefore and make disciples. I sit on my throne, ruling and reigning. And you're my messengers. So go tell people that I sit unchallenged and I am coming again to make all things right. Go tell other people that they must believe in me and follow me and be swept up into my kingdom. Are you doing this, brothers and sisters? Are you speaking of who he is? There are others around us that he is going to draw into his kingdom and he wants to use you to do it. But friend, if you have not yet believed in this king, if you're still questioning and wondering about who this Jesus is or what, what this is all about, what does this mean for you? Jesus is coming again and he's coming to judge. All those who are part of the world's kingdoms, all those who have raised their voices against the God of heaven will be defeated and destroyed There's no middle ground with this king. You're either with him or you are against him. So don't allow the warm and fuzzy feelings of Christmas to deceive you and to dull your mind. Jesus did come once as a baby to bring salvation by his death, but he is coming again as the king to bring condemnation and judgment. And so I share with you the words of Paul God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is confirmation that God is going to judge the world through Jesus. The king is coming back and you need to be ready. So Jesus had to be the son of the woman. As we heard last week, he had to be human in order to bring us salvation. But Jesus also had to be the son of man. He had to be king so that he could sweep us up into his victorious reign. Let's pray together. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would take your word and drive it home into our hearts Cause your truth to live in us, to come alive in us so that we will see you high and lifted up on your throne and we will live with joy and victory and freedom. We pray that your truth would come alive in us so that we would be compelled to share you with those who are around us, to speak of your kingdom 
And I pray that your truth would come alive in the hearts of those who don't believe in you. That they would know that you are the king and their savior. Do that even on this day. I pray in your name, amen.